This podcast is dedicated to the Dakota. We honor those who care for the land on which our building and its community is built. Thank you. Welcome back to the Students Co-op Memory Journal. It's the holiday season in the waning days of 2021, and this is episode three. Former co-op resident Ian reached out to me and has been keeping us in touch with his old housemate, Mark. Together, we've been talking about the house as it was two to three decades prior to now, and I'm going to curate our discussions into a few episodes, so let's begin. Travel back, back to the 1990s, as recalled with Ian and Mark. Let's introduce ourselves before we get started, if that's all right with you. And just because I am the host, I'll go first real quick. My name is Maxime. I don't have preferred pronouns. You can use any of them. That's fine. I lived at the Students Co-op from 2011, March 2011 to roughly October 2015, although I moved out a couple times. And today we have with us, well, let's hear from them. Sure. This is Ian Morris. I was at the co-op from 94 to 97. And during that time, I was house manager uh, for a while. So I, so I had that experience. Yeah. That, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about other details as we go. My name is Mark Ambro, and I was there from 1992 through 2002. I think it would have been probably September of 92 through December of 2002. So yeah, I saw a whole bunch of different, I guess, cohorts, you could call them, and phases of the co-op's sort of uh, governance being pretty skeletal and minimal when I first moved into 92 to being, you know, really, really in, involved um, you know, by the time I moved out in 2002. And that just continued after I moved out, too, and even got, I think, you know, more involved. I had quite a lot of seniority, I mean, by the time I, I left, but I, I wasn't the longest serving person at that point. There was a, another person who had been there a lot longer that wasn't quite as involved, but was uh, very much a, you know, a, a, a remembered personality, and we can get into those details. They're kind of fun to talk about, but I count those as very formative years for me. I learned an awful lot about myself and about getting along with other people and a lot of logistics gave me some career skills that have, you know, been largely responsible for my, my current job here at the university. For what it's worth, I, I work in a, in Falwell Hall, which is across the street and down the block from the co-op. So I'm, I'm very close by. Wow. Well, it's, up, so, so. Since we're already on your story, why don't we uh, ask you how you first found out about the co-op? That's a, a great question. I'd love to talk a lot about that. You, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, Feel free to cut me off if I'm getting, you know, to be, you know, too long. Oh, I will. Too far <laughs> details. Okay. So, um, I went to school initially in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I graduated from high school in 1988, and I went to Ann Arbor for a couple of years and became very good friends with a fellow student in a way at the University of Michigan who called me up a few years later. I, I ended up transferring back to Minnesota. I grew up here. I grew up in Bloomington. And um, so I went out of state to go to, to Michigan. And after two years in Ann Arbor, I got a little homesick and, you know, it was exorbitantly expensive compared to in-state tuition at Minnesota. So I transferred back and um, I was taking classes at the University of Minnesota living off campus. And my friend from the University of Michigan called me up and said, I was accepted into a PhD program at 
the University of Minnesota, you want to help me find a place to live? And I was like, sure. Great to see you. Come on over and we can look around Dickytown or wherever. And so he met me and he had lived at a co-op in Ann Arbor, the home to NASCO for uh, at least, I want to say one or two years and was comfortable with it. So we wanted to find a co-op if there was one around here. Can you break down very briefly for the audience what NASCO is? They might not be aware. North American Students of Cooperation, uh, overreaching umbrella organization for a lot of student housing co-ops, probably other kinds of co-ops too now throughout North America. And uh, their headquarters are in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, There were a lot of housing co-ops there. And there had been some very loose, uh, exchanges, I think, with NASCO over the years to the students co-op in the University of Minnesota, but the, the relationship did not exist at the time. Uh, but he, he knew he wanted to live in a co-op. And so he ended up that spring of 92, he, he put a deposit in and I kind of filed it away in my mind. And uh, later in the summer, I still didn't have a place to live. And so I checked back at the students co-op. The recruitment manager gave me a, a tour of the place um, said there was still a, a single available and did I want it? Yes, I did. So I n- ended up moving in in September, but always had a little bit less seniority than my friend, Nick, who was deposited <laughs> in six months earlier. And he, uh, you know, when it came time to, to, uh, choose house, uh, jobs or whatever, he's always had a little bit more seniority than me. And, and that was always kind of a going joke. Did he explain how that worked seniority or was it kind of just like, Oh, well you better get in on this or, or what? No, I think that uh, I, and again, I'm guessing this is a long time ago. Uh, the explanation of, of seniority and, and house jobs, uh, probably, uh, came during orientation when I moved in. Probably Nick moved in a couple months before me. It was kind of common, I think, for graduate students, particularly first-year grad students, to move in a few months before the classes started. So he probably moved in in July or August. You know, the first year, probably even two that I lived there, I just I was taking classes myself, and I I think I had hallways and stairs, or I think I actually I cleaned bathrooms. That was like the lowest seniority job. So I was. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, how did you, Ian, find out about uh, the co-op? I had a friend, Maggie, and we were both in the journalism association. We were journalism students. We were in the uh, SPJ, Society of Professional Journalists. And she had asked me for help in moving from an apartment she had in the West Bank. This was uh, probably 93. And uh, so I became familiar with it through through helping her move. And then about a year later, I moved out of an apartment building, spent some time back in Seattle, came back to Minnesota and didn't have a specific place planned to live. And she suggested I check out the co-op and maybe stay there for, for a while. Uh, and I, I applied and got in and uh, it became you know, not, a, not a temporary thing at all, but someplace I stayed for, for three years and really, really enjoyed being. That's awesome. All right. So explain what your impressions were or thoughts about the house were before you moved in. You know, I was aware of the house uh, long before I even helped Maggie move in. You know, it's on frat row. There was always a sign that said students co-op. It didn't look like the frats on either side. You could tell it was something different. And, you know, the building, I don't want to, the building, I don't want to sound negative, but the building always looked a little bit, you know, it wasn't kept up like some of the better funded frats. It always looked a little bit on the edge. And so I was always kind of curious about what kind of place it was. What were the visual hints that told you that this might be a little unkempt or a little bit less funded? 
I remember the sign specifically, there was kind of a hand-painted sign, like on a piece of plywood that said students co-op. It wasn't an expensive sign. And I think it was several years old and the paint was peeling a little bit. Was that just and, leaning yeah, against the railing or where was that displayed? I, I think it was posted. I think it was on posts, but it, it just looked something like students had done. You know, it didn't, it, it contrasted with some of the frats that obviously had some money and tradition and had a had a way of doing things that made their houses look really nice. So it didn't look bad necessarily, but it looked a little bit haphazard. Maybe that's the way to put it. Was the bicycle up there at the time that you moved? No, in? I, I that came later. Okay. I think the bike went up when we when we were there. Um, the bike wasn't there. But my first impression was probably not a positive impression. You know, I, 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 lived in the <laughs> honest. I lived in the dorms and they were, the dorms were well run. Everything was clean and well maintained. And I didn't have any impressions before, you know, my friend Nick ended up deciding that's where he wanted to live. And I was really good friends with Nick and it, he's exceptionally bright person with a judgment that I, I really trusted a lot. And one thing I didn't sort of mention is that we were both athletes at the University of Michigan. We were both gymnasts. And so I was transitioning out of gymnastics at that time. I had just, I, had, I was actually on the, the Gopher Gymnastics varsity team. And I had just made a decision to not continue with that, focus more on studies. And I was in a kind of a difficult period of trying to find a new social group, find my footing in a, in a different discipline. I and this seems like a, a really good community to uh, continue that search within. And I had some experience in high school on the West Bank at a kind of a funky vegetarian restaurant called the New Riverside Cafe. So I knew of that place and this had a similar kind of vibe to it. I was also probably familiar with North Country Co-op at the time because it was located over on the West Bank at 22nd Avenue in Riverside. And um, I had probably shopped there a little bit. That was a grocery co-op and the, the cafe, the Riverside Cafe was a uh, sort of a restaurant co-op and here was a housing co-op. So I was kind of like putting the puzzle together in all of these ways to find a new social group and a new place to kind of start finding my way. There were not any varsity athletes at all in the students go up. Uh, and that was a, that was very appealing to me because that had been my reference point for years. I mean, 15 years prior to that. I mean, it was going back to junior high, even elementary school. And now I was kind of looking for a different scene. So for you, it was very exciting. And for Ian, maybe yeah. it was just like practical. Yes. I needed a place to stay and it seemed good enough. I didn't think I would stay there for a long time, but then. As I say, my, my feelings changed. When I moved in, I was, um, I was working really hard. I had declared a major by that point. Again, sort of within, with Nick's influence, he was in the PhD program in math at the U. I had declared math as an undergraduate major, and I was sort of in my upper level phase of that, doing pretty well and having some success. But I was very focused on classes. I really didn't have any aspirations to do management. You know, I was doing my part as far as house jobs and and enjoying the culture of the place, but I didn't really see it as a place that was I was going to stay, and, and that was my role. And I just kind of, you know, was observing what, how the place ran and developing friendships, and and sharing my my interest and my sort of talents. You know, I was really into cycling a lot, and there were always people that 
you know, had bikes that need, needed to be worked on or had questions about how to work on bikes. And Oh, that's great. That's so, it's so nice that both of you had in a way, a friend connection, even if, he, you know, Nick wasn't living there at the time there, there was a, it's almost like you were invited there, um, which makes me want to ask you both, what was the application process? Like, do you feel there was a little bit of cronyism, you know, like, Hey, I know you. So, uh, so you get in or, or, or was there a, a voting process? Sure. Um, I think that the application process was instituted after um, I moved in. And I don't know if it, if, uh, if it was, you know, it would have been between 92 and 94 because Ian recalls applying. Jeff was the recruitment manager and he gave me a tour and said there was availability. And I don't, I didn't even fill out an application. I'm almost sure I didn't. <laughs> wow. it was kind of just, I think it was just the uh, judgment of the recruitment managers to whether or not this would fit. And, and, um, and I didn't know Jeff at all. Um, I think I did mention that, you know, my friend Nick had, you know, put a deposit down and he was going to be moving in, um, or if he had, maybe he was there already, but, uh, so I may have had that as a little bit of a reference, but I did not fill out the application. The application, I remember being, there was a big discussion about, you know, what questions should be asked. And Jeff, who was the recruitment manager who really, I think oversaw that, that application process and, and, and the voting process that we went through. I don't think I was accepted by a, a voting process of the house. Very shortly after that, I think we started voting on the applications because there ended up being a lot of applications. And there was, you know, I think that the management was a little bit more insular coming out of the 80s. And by the time the new group kind of came in, there was some more desire for more sort of egalitarian. Um, and so then we you know, started doing this. Everybody needed to vote on the various applications that were submitted. Um, so they were like, hey, who's this I Mark guy and how did he get in here? We got to start an application process. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember, you know, maybe we can get some better answers to uh, when and and why we started doing applications. But at the time I got in, I don't remember filling out any applications um, or having anybody, you know, question why I got in. And, and I don't remember that there was a person who was questionable and therefore we had to start screening. You know, you know, Mark, I, I think, I, you know, I think over time, we just ended up with so many applications that it became a burden for the recruitment manager to uh, make yeah. a decision yeah. on all these people that were showing up and people would show up and talk to somebody and they would tell the recruitment manager, oh, there was this guy. You just eventually you had to have something you could give people that said, you know, fill this out. You know, we're going to perform the some number of weeks before the start of the quarter, we're going to, you know, make a decision and we'll let you know. And, and as Mark is suggesting, you know, later in my time, it became a very formal process with, uh, you know, fairly comprehensive applications. I remember, you know, sitting there, you know, very sincerely reading them all and thinking about what I was reading and, and you know, what people I thought would be a good fit and, and what people wouldn't. Uh, it became it became a big deal. Uh, but that that process yeah. really came into place. Uh, after I got there, I, I think I filled something out, but it was largely, uh, still Jeff, the same guy, the same group manager, Jeff's decision about, you know, who was a good fit and who wasn't. So it, it, I mean, and he let me know very shortly uh, after I spoke to him, I think there was a space and he thought I was good enough and he gave it to me. So Mark, you wouldn't have voted on Ian's application, like, cause you moved in 92 and Ian moved in. 
94. 94. So just a couple years later. Um, so I'm assuming that the application process kind of wasn't even installed at the time. I, I think I think Ian's right in that in that I didn't um, uh, vote on Ian's. I certainly don't remember even voting on Ian's in particular. I remember voting on a lot of them. Um, there was a person who, who took over recruiting uh, from Jeff. Uh, it was a woman who had moved in. Uh, if I'm remembering the succession pretty right, and she was amazing. She was she just took the recruitment. She I think maybe even done a team with another person for a little while, but. I think she was the one who kind of started the application process in order to make it more fair and make take some of the burden off of the recruitment manager for making these decisions and being sort of the gatekeeper and influencing a lot of the culture of the co-op. And it was just sort of this desire to make it like everybody's, you know, sort of set up a system of, okay, well, the stack of applications can be down in the kitchen. You're going to have a week to look through them. Please, everybody look through them and give us your rank voting. And then I'll, I'll get back to the applicants and let them know whether they're in or not. And, and, and I think, you know, the first phase of Jeff being there, because Jeff was there at a couple of different times I and mean, he traveled, I think, in between. So his first phase was he was doing the recruitment manager a lot more like informally. And I think the housing market changed a lot. I remember, you know, the mid to late 90s, the housing market was just such that we always had way more applicants than there were face spaces available. In the earlier 90s, it may not have been the case. Do you want to speculate at all about why that might have been the case? I think I would I would be out of my element in speculating about that. I just know I know that housing fluctuated a lot, and I had a good friend who, you know, said somewhere around those times, and that that she was really having trouble finding an apartment. She had to go to St. Paul, I and mean, she was working in Minneapolis, but she had to go to St. Paul to find an apartment. And she could not get housing in Minneapolis at all. And that was at the time that I was living at the co-op and I was feeling incredibly lucky because our rent was really low. Yet we had all of these applicants. We very easily could have raised rent a lot and, and took in more money at that time. I don't know if that had been the case earlier in the 90s, like in 92. I kind of don't think so. I, I consider myself fairly in tune with a lot of that now because I, I live in in South Minneapolis and I really I kind of live a political junkie. So I follow all the all the issues that, you know, the city is dealing with or a lot of the issues the city is dealing with. And I know that housing in the last couple of years has been a, a real, really big issue to the point where we had a city charter question, you know, trying to address whether or not to do a, to explore rent control. or to Not to get too you know. sidetracked, but what is rent control? Okay. So that's kind of a, an urban housing, mostly urban housing policy that goes way back, like 50 plus, maybe even more than 50 years. And big cities generally kind of have a, a, a policy about rent can't increase more than a certain amount every year in order to make housing affordable to lower income people. There's a huge debate about whether or not rent control works. And, you know, there's old versions of rent control. And then there's new 21st century versions of rent control that give exceptions for new development, you know, where developer can kind of raise rents a little bit in the first few years in order to recover some costs, you know, and that's considered a little bit more friendly to uh, development, but it's, it's a contentious issue. Um, and Minneapolis has never really had rent control to my knowledge, whereas big cities like Chicago and New York have with varying degrees of success or failure. And so the questions have come to Minneapolis 
and well, the metro area of St. Paul as well. And there were ballot questions just this last election cycle around rent control um, on that would have changed the city charter in both Minneapolis and St. Paul. And both of them passed. And Minneapolis was a little bit weaker in the sense that um, what passed was just this policy to explore the possibility of rent control, whether or not it gets implemented is another question. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's, that's in, very cautious. Yes. And in St. Paul, the ordinance that passed was much stricter. It capped increases at 3% annually. And now there's a whole bunch of questions about like, uh, maybe we're going to have to amend this and change it somehow. And right now, uh, Minneapolis is, I think, in a much better position where we can kind of look at how well the strict version in St. Paul that passed works out and change ours accordingly. Yeah, I live in Seattle and it's, it's the same. I mean, these these you know, big cities that uh, uh, have a lot of uh, jobs and are attractive places to live, Seattle, Minneapolis, uh, San Francisco, you know, the, the housing is a crisis. There's a lot of things that contribute to that. It's harder and harder to develop. One of the problems here in Seattle, I know that's a problem in San Francisco. And so, you know, this challenge of balancing, you know, maintaining the character of neighborhoods with making sure there's places for people to live. These are, these are hard problems. Yes. And I'd like to actually, I've got three questions kind of floating in my mind. Hope you don't mind if we kind of try to cover them briefly. And it has to do with demographics as well as rent. What kind of, do you remember an exact price for rent that we're talking about here? At the co-op? Yes. Yeah. I remember the rates pretty well. I mean, one of the roles that I sort of ended up moving into was the treasurer position after a couple of years of being there. Uh, I was recruited to take over the treasurer duties from the person who had done it for several years at that point. And, uh, and I agreed. So I ended up having to keep in the front of my head, what the rates on the various rooms were. Tell us the rates. Tell us the rates. (laughs) Oh, sure. Okay. All right. I think it on the low end, it was, if you were in a double, like 155 per month. Nice. Now. Okay. It, it depended on whether or not you paid month to month versus whether you paid three months at a time. Whoa. Okay. So you had payment plans. Yep. Yeah. In fact, I think that there were at some, at a certain point, there may have even been, there was a deduction for paying three months at a time. And then there was even a deeper deduction for paying either six or six or 12 months at a time, like a full year. And then there were always people that paid month to month. So it was really pretty complicated for the accounts receivable person or the treasurer person to uh, yeah. keep track of. Some people that that are on scholarships or have a housing allowance as part of their tuition program. So if you have a scholarship and you're being paid by somebody else to go to school, one of the things you have is a housing allowance and you'll get that payment at the beginning of the quarter or the semester or whatever. And from maybe, who? From who? Who's giving you that? The you? Uh, if you get a scholarship from the university, if you have an athletic scholarship, although that wasn't a big thing at the co-op, people have various situations where they're they're being you know they're being helped out with school, right? Yeah, and generally those kind of funds probably flow into a personal bank account, and then you're paying for your rent out of your personal bank account. So it wasn't like we were dealing with the university or some outside entity that was funding a scholarship. Um, uh, that's not to my recollection anyway, you know, pun- funding, you know, payments came from individuals, but they may have been given a certain allotment of money, like a housing allowance. Yeah. Uh, and so for them, why would they want to make three payments when they've been already paid up front? And so, and so, yeah, the co-op benefited from 
having that payment up front and not having to collect rent every month from that person. And or for those three months, and then we didn't have to think about them for another period of time. And then it also, you know, I think we were kind of like on a month to month, you know, so if, if somebody wanted to move out right away, then, you know, maybe they didn't do the three months or the six months, but if they were pretty sure that they liked it and they were going to stay for that whole academic year, then they would do the, you know, the, the payment for, for six months at a time. It was pretty complicated to keep track of all of that. Hey, Mark, when you, when you were there, I remember you put up a chart every month that had all the rooms, who was in it, the rate for the room, and it also showed what the status of the, the rent was for that room. So if somebody was not paying, it was posted on the inside of the door for everyone to see. Oh, that was yeah. that was interesting. So that that was an interesting dynamic. Yeah. You know, you couldn't really hide if you were not contributing financially for your room. Uh, just this is just a little side story, but in my era, that all went into like a discrete place in the accounting um, until it it came it came to be a problem that a couple of people were not paying rent, and so we actually proposed at a meeting. Um, you know what? Let's just show who is or is not. And it solved the problem instantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm a big proponent of that. You know, there's there's sort of a theme in in the co-op of of, of conflict and discomfort. You know, versus organization and, and and order and rules. And this is a really good example. There's a lot of people who would suggest, oh, let's not put somebody on the spot. But if you do that, and if you're fair to everybody and everyone's treated the same. It puts good pressure on people to to hold up their end of the deal. So that brings me to so let's say uh, you're paying 150 a month, and we're not we're not talking about meals or anything like that. Um, that and then some people can pay 450 for a quarter. Like going back to the rate. So I remember it being 155 for a kind of like a. I think those were the less desirable doubles, and then there were 185 doubles, and then there were a, I think there was a two. 05 single and then there was a 245 single so maybe four different levels 125 185 for the singles or for the doubles and then uh 205 and 245 for the singles four different rates for the rooms was the high rate was the high rate for room 18 with the three big windows on the uh, third floor no that was always a double i was in fact i was in that room for a little while are we at, the end of, at the end of the hall on the third floor, yeah. If I was I was never in that room. I was right next to that room. Uh, yes, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so I think the big single was, I want to say room six, because Maggie was in that room um, for a period of time. Room um, six, that, that was, was, that like was my room. That was oh, my room. Right, I, and that was, a, that was a double when I was there, yeah. Oh, okay. With my good buddy, I Charlie. Be, I could be wrong on the number. Um, yeah, but it was, there were a couple rooms that got nicely renovated and they went for the, you know, the higher single rate of 245. The, what I called the uh, sort of the acorn single, a small single on the first floor right across from the bathroom in the back of the house, really small little single. I was there for a long, long time. And that was, I think, 205. I think um, that's still a single got, I, or was recently. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that there would be two people crammed into that. The guy was really tight for one person. Um, <laughs> you got five dollars off per month if you paid. If you paid three months at a time, you got five dollars off. If you paid six months at a time, I think it was ten dollars off per month. Wow, um, that's cool. So 
so uh, those were the deductions. And there would always be like on this chart, like by the time I kind of started doing treasure things, uh, let's say by 94 or 95, I had, you know, a column for the base rent and then any deductions for, you know, a bulk payment, any upcharges for a meal plan, which kind of came along, any, you know, credits for your house job or fines for your house job, and then a, a final amount due for that month and then a running balance. Um, so those, that's kind of what my manual, I mean, this is, the, I didn't use computers for spreadsheets. I just kind of used a ruler and pencil and I made my own little grid spreadsheet out of buckets. paper. And, that's work intensive. And it was very work intensive, but I was kind of like, you know, I was, I, I didn't mind it. I kind of liked it, I guess. And, you know, so, um, my, my rent charts and, and various reports ended, ended very looking very homely like that. You know, with all the numbers <laughs> I, added up. And I, I really hope we still have those. Oh, somewhere. I have a lot of them. Oh, you do? I have a lot of them. Okay. Wait, I do. Please, yeah. please, if you can yeah. scan or photograph those, please. Um, I can delete okay. any like sensitive information, but we, we have to like yeah. put that in the show notes. That is amazing. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll try and dig those out. Um, I am kind of a little bit of a pack rat, so I've got those things squirreled away. Um, it might take me a little bit of time to find them, but, uh, but, uh, I will, it, it may not even be useful to people, but it might be fun to look through. Absolutely. Mark, one of the things you brought up was, was fines. Can you talk a little bit about fines at the co-op and what got you a fine? Well, um, <laughs> Uh, you being a house manager, Ian could speak to this uh, pretty well too. But um, uh, you know, if you would, uh, the dynamic was that sometimes you know you agreed to do your house job, and for whatever reason, legitimate or not, you couldn't do it. And so then the person who had to do the job the next week would have twice the work. You know, dishes was a very common one. Dishes had to be done every day and it was somebody's house job to do the dishes and to kind of clean the kitchen in a basic way, maybe the stove and the sink. No, no, no. sorry, sorry and, to Mark. Mark, dishes were a special case because it wasn't a house job that some single person had. It rotated around because it was such a big job. Is that right? Team, it was a team. So there was like dishes one and dishes two on a given day. Was it weekend dishes that floated? There was some dishes job that floated and everyone had to do it at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That Is system that actually thing? lasted to, yeah. I can talk about what happened with the dishes eventually, but but that that system was what we used when I moved yeah. in in 2011. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. All right. Well, it was where I was kind of going with that is that, you know, if you skipped your house job and you coming the next day, or if you were on weekend dishes and it was your turn or whatever, you might have this massive pile of dishes, massive. And well, it would be yep. appropriate that you got credit for that. So where's your credit going to come from? Well, it's going to come from the fine to the person who didn't do their job. Um, and so those in theory, those two offset each other. And, um, and, and it was the job of the house manager to, kind of like on a daily or every couple of days basis, kind of go around, did that person vacuum the hallway the way they were supposed to? Did they do the dishes the way they were supposed to? And if they didn't, well, you get a little fine. If they did, if they, you know, usually it was the job, the, the responsibility of the person doing the job to say, wow, I had tons of extra dishes or the carpet was incredibly dirty. I'm, I'm requesting a credit and they would request a credit. And then it, maybe at the, the house manager would, would make a decision about, yes, it was warranted, or maybe we need to discuss this with the board. And usually they, they were kind of like approved. And so there, there was this column on the spreadsheet that related to, you know, uh, credits or, or fines. Um, and, and that was, 
the primary way that, you know, credits or fines were issued. I mean, I think there were other ways that that credits could be issued, like if there was a particularly huge job that was being done and the and the house manager had to maybe the maintenance manager had to organize a particularly huge project or you know, there was a big, really weird issue that came up that the treasurer had to deal with that uh, maybe they could request some extra house credit. If the board approved it, that would be discussed at a board meeting and then, and then in, you know, inserted in that little box for a given month so that their credit was applied to, uh, you know, their, to the, maybe to that month and then to their ongoing balance. So we try, when I was doing the treasurer, I really tried to make everything super clear and like Ian said, you know, kind of just put it out there so that everybody knew where everybody stood, and uh, there could be some, you know, a little bit of social pressure to uh, hold up your end, you know. Yeah, actually, that system was, also it, lasted. We we also had that where we would talk about it at a board meeting. You know, hey, such and such uh, did a really extra good job. Um, bathrooms are looking uh, amazing. Can let's propose like a bonus yeah. for this person, and it's approved. And then okay, yeah. it shows, and then the house manager can actually approve that. Um, and put it into the system. Yeah. 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 So I'll just, I'll just run through the positions that we had when I was there in 2012, and maybe you can tell me whether that existed or not. Right. So this is, maybe this is a game. I don't know. So in 2012, in like summer of 2012, we had something called dish a and dish B. Okay. That was so that there was always two people in the kitchen working together, but dish A's job, this was five co-opers, one per one per day of the weekdays, is washing all the dishes except the cast irons once a week. It was actually Sunday through Thursday, um, but that's just like a, that's because Friday and Saturday, you know, there was weekend dish. Yep. And then yeah, dish, that was weekend dishes. Yeah. And yep. then dish B was mopping the kitchen and the dining area, cleaning prep yep. tables, dining tables, the ovens, stoves, yep. and the cast irons. Yeah, exactly. I had the cast irons. I never be, remember being part of it, but definitely mopping, sweeping was dish B. Dish A was actual dishes. Okay. And then, so that's, that's, a, that's a total of 10 co-opers. And then three co-opers uh-huh. were on bathrooms, mopping the bathrooms, cleaning all the surfaces once a week, Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Uh, Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Yeah, that, yeah, that sounds reasonable. It sounds like, sounds, sounds right. Like that you would have bathrooms on one of three days during the week, either Sunday, Tuesday, or Thursday. That sounds right to me. I know I, I held, you know, that role, uh, at various times and what day of the week I did, I don't remember, but I, I you know, three days out of the week rings a bell with me. I feel like when I moved in, it might've been Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something like that. And it shifted uh-huh. a little, but yeah. cause I feel like I did Wednesday bathrooms when I first moved in, but oh, anyway, okay. then there was three car, which is common areas in recycling. So that include included mopping the living room, den and porches and relocating castaway items to the lost and found um, once a week. And that was three days a week. Okay. And common then, areas in recycling. We did you. Okay. Um, and that's different from halls and stairs. Halls and stairs was yes, just okay. one prized position that was mopping the stairs and vacuuming the halls once a week. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That sounds right. And the, the common areas and recycling also rings a bell. I had sort of forgotten about that. I think those, 
I think those are the house jobs. Uh, um, I'm trying to remember if there was a, there was anything else, but I uh, garbage. 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 Interesting. Well, we had that okay, been so, part of common areas. Was that part of common areas and recycling? I feel like um, garbage was something else. Um, I'm not yeah. sure how that actually occurred. That might be common areas. But um, yeah, I think it was just sort of like the garbage that was in your area. So if there was a garbage can in the common area, it was a common area. So the garbage in the bathroom, that was the bathroom person. The garbage in the kitchen, that was the kitchen person. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. Yep, that sounds right. So then we had two extra ones that we kind of invented. I'm not sure. So one of them was utilities, and that was for organizing oh. the the laundry room, the tool room, and turning the compost bin. Mm. And oh, the, wow. the reason we okay. developed that one was because. Um, the laundry room would often get a mess and we would have clothing items that we didn't know who they belonged to. And so there was like, and, and people would start laundry and then forget it. And so we had a way to sort of transition laundry out of the laundry room in stages by like moving oh. laundry from, okay, it's in the waiting bin and then it's in the throwaway bin and then it's just thrown away or donated. Yeah. And then we had, and then the other invention was food prep. And that was because people got so busy. We didn't have a supper club really um, much. So just three hours per week, this food, this person was making beans, rice, veggie burgers, and other basic ingredients for the meal plan. So if you're on the meal plan, you could just help yourself to pre-prepped food items um, that would like save wow. you, okay. save you time and like, you know, you don't have to turn on the rice maker. You just scoop the rice out of the, out of the fridge. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that was separate from the food manager position. It sounds like. Yes. So then the manager positions were um, two maintenance managers whose jobs were, uh, that was me and my, my roommate for a while, which was pretty funny. Cause it was like room six was like the maintenance manager's room. Um we oversaw work weekends, incentivized and motivated co-opers to get their general hours done, um, identified and prioritized projects, liaison with the contractors, and um, I think actually house manager liaison with um, fraternity partners or FPA, because they were the ones that could like get the towels and the rags kind of like circulated, dirty out, clean in. Um, but maintenance manager also had to know a thing about power tools because if no one else was doing things, maintenance managers ended up doing those things. Um, and then we had two food managers um, whose job was to buy food for everyone. And I don't know why that became two, but I think it just became, it, it was, it was very time consuming. You know, people are, are busy, they're at school. And so um just to like take the time to go and shop and like pile up things and buy so many things and then bring it back, put it yep. all in the fridges, store it. It was just very time consuming. Yep. And, and so, and so having, and because there was a constant demand for food, having two food managers really helped in visiting mm -hmm. co-op partners warehouse. And also uh, it eventually transitioned into things like dumpster diving Um and like found food and things like that to kind of reduce mm. the, 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 the need for a bigger budget. Mm -hmm. Then there was president, um, mm -hmm. house manager, which whose like side title was vice president. I don't know if you had that. Oh, okay. 
Uh, yeah. You know what? I think, I think there, there was the vice president was the same as the treasurer when I was kind of recruited into the treasurer position. I think that the, the treasurer was kind of the default vice president. Okay. That makes um, sense. But I don't remember that role really, like you say, that might've floated around a house manager later on, but I don't think the vice president was really, uh, had specific duties that I can recall. Then there was treasurer, um, and they were, so it was interesting because I think we had financial manager and treasurer as separate duties. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And that, that I think dated from when I kind of said, Hey, I need some help here. Um, so when I got the job, it was accounts payable and accounts receivable. And then I split it up into, you know, accounts payable being the treasurer and accounts receivable being the house, the financial manager. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. I think finances was also kind of like how things were happening in the house, even though, even though the house manager was like, we're issuing this fine or credit, the financial manager would actually budget that out. Um, Yes, exactly. They were, I was just getting, when when Ian had that job, I was just getting slips from him and I was entering them into the in my little, you know, my, uh, my grid hand drawn papers and <laughs> hand drawn papers. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't have to make any judgments. I would just, I got the, I got that from the house manager, but as a finance, as a financial manager, I, I just took that information and, you know, did with it what, what I need to do to create those, those billing statements or whatever. That's awesome. Okay. And then so pretty soon that, that turned into two different people. Uh, you know, there was a treasurer and then a financial manager at a certain point, but for a, for a while I was kind of doing both jobs. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, and then the last three were secretary and I had that for a while, yeah. which was taking meeting minutes. Um, and I would like draw cartoons on the side to make people read them. And uh-huh. we had this policy yeah. of, of posting the meeting minutes in the three bathrooms so that people were kind of, reading them in the bathroom that's good uh-huh. yeah. um, and then recruitment manager was separate they were kind of orientation as well right i mean we didn't have an oreo yeah. manager so uh-huh. recruitment was find people like hopefully that, that person actually attends the university so they actually are there to be like hey we can like post things we need people um but they also would encourage applications and encourage people to read the applications that are submitted and encourage everyone to vote on them so that they could make like a decent, you know, um, valuation of whether that person, whether people were paying attention to who was coming into the house or not, because we did have to evict at least one person. I remember, um, for, um, substance abuse and stealing. Um, and then the last one was, archives or alumni manager and that was someone who worked with the secretary to keep historic records of the house which i think we only had that for it felt like it was like kind of coming and going for a year we were like do we need this position yes we need this position because this is like institutional knowledge that we're preserving no we don't need it because we have it we have a little manager office we don't need a person so I'm not even sure if archives or alumni manager even exists or ever existed again after that. <laughs> uh-huh. Mark, maybe can you talk a little bit about board meetings? People obviously would show up to argue their case, but but beyond that, 
was there a lot of house attendance or was it just the officers doing doing their their business at the board meetings? Well, I remember, you know, people would we had pretty good attendance from the officers, meaning the, you know, the president and the treasurer and the, the recruitment manager and, and the house manager. Then if there was an issue that a, a person had, they would kind of show up during that maybe two hour period. I think house, I think we tried to keep those meetings that I think would be between one and two hours. Um, and they were monthly, I think. And uh, the person would, who had their issue, um, you know, might show up and then, and then take off. But I remember them being pretty regular. I mean, there were, there were definitely some bigger ones where there were a lot of people in attendance and they, and the meeting ended up going <laughs> really, really long. Usually the meetings at the beginning of the year would be a lot more involved because people had questions and, um, people were all trying to get to know each other. And, I, I don't know, Mark. I think, I think as, as the year went on and people developed, you know, some, some conflicts with each other. I think the meetings would get more interesting as, as time went on, yeah. as people's patience with each yeah. other got, got, got shorter. Because you just mentioned that it makes me wonder, did you have like a certain period of time where there was like a great deal of move-ins all at once? Is that, is that kind of marked by the university trimester system or semester system, or did you kind of have just people coming and going throughout the year? No, it was definitely the big, the big move in time was in, you know, in the late summer and, and fall. Um, so and, by the, so by, uh, by the time the next summer rolled around, we'd have gone through a whole bunch of these like conflicts and the meetings kind of bulking up from, from people like working things out. Is that, is that kind of what yeah, you said? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, Mark, Mark may have a different memory, but I, I, I remember there being an excitement and enthusiasm, especially from new co-opers being especially if they were, if they were younger and this was a new experience for them being on their own. They were so excited to be in this, this place with these other people. There's fun people to talk to. You've got a responsibility. You're part of a, part of a group in a way that's, I think, I think particularly exciting when you're in your late teens and early twenties. But like anything else, time goes on and, and, you know, sometimes you don't feel like doing bathrooms or hallways or whatever. And, and sometimes you don't get along with your roommate and some, sometimes somebody does something or there's a problem with parking or whatever. And, and then it comes before the house meeting. And, and I guess that's what I'm thinking of is people, people developing uh, conflicts and, and, and then those playing out. I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to, I don't want to create the impression that it was a, an unhappy place, but it's inevitable that people are going to have disagreements. And, and it was good that instead of getting into fights, they brought up to the board. I guess I, I remember sometimes, you know, people would come to the board and uh, they would start talking about an issue and they would try to present it in very sort of broad terms. You know, maybe we should have a rule in the house that X, Y, Z, but you could see that it was really about some individual conflict they had with a person. And they were trying to frame it in terms of, you know, a house policy. Would you say that's a little bit like the Minnesota way to approach a conflict or? I think think you could say that. I remember one, I remember one incident in particular, and we could, we could get off on a lot of little, little anecdotes, but you know, somebody sort of art project that they were making some sort of found art project in the living room. And, and that was fine. They had a space that they were working and it was, it consisted mostly of, 
of sticks and leaves and vines that they were sort of building into this, this little installation. That was great, no problem. Well, the woman who was had the job of, of living room, cleaning up living room, you know, just did not understand what that was. And so she cleaned it up and threw it in the dumpster. <laughs> and, oh no. And and uh and then the, the the artist came to the next board meeting and said, you know, I think we ought to have a rule that if people are working on an art project in the living room, that they should be allowed to use that space, you know, because there's not enough room in their rooms and just this long sort of proposed rule. And, you know, I felt bad for it, but really. Of course, it was but everyone's like, fact. you're the artist, obviously. Right? <laughs> Everyone, you know, it was clearly about the fact that her, that her installation got thrown in the dumpster because someone didn't understand that it was, it was an art project. So. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that sounds very familiar indeed. <laughs> so that this kind of brings me to, you were talking about younger folks and that, and we're talking about housing equity um, or housing equality, really. And I just wanted to know, you know, what kinds of people were applying and um, because I'm sure that some people would be what chores, fines, credits. We don't do that, you know, in my, in uh, I'm not familiar with that culture of like using capitalism to kind of like move us around inside our own home. This is not for me. And what kind of people were like, oh, okay, this is for me. I'll try this. You know, did you notice a certain racial demographic, uh, sexual demographic, um, anything like that? Mark, do you want to start? Ah, wow. Well, it's a uh, bit of a loaded question, um, and I I want to I, I answer in a res- you know a respectful way. Uh, yeah, it's such a sensitive what, thing. What, mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I I'm afraid I'm probably going to answer in a way that's going to date me a little bit. I there wasn't uh, a, a a level of, of sensitivity around a lot of issues at that time in the '90s the way that there is now. And uh, so we weren't, I guess, on, on the front lines of some of the more difficult issues. But I, you know, I do remember us really trying to, you know, be open and have an open, open minds to other ways of looking at things, other ways of living our lives, uh, and, uh, and and being, you know, uh, progressive to folks that were dealing with external pressures or disadvantages there, honestly, I mean, I mean, the question of diversity is relative. What you're saying is that like, it's kind of the co-op is, was always had these things on. I think the difficult thing that we're trying to talk around is that the co-op culture attracts a certain demographic automatically. Yes. It's it's primarily white. It's primarily students. Um, so, I, I think that's really it, Max. I mean, I think if you looked at the people who were there, it was diverse to a degree, as the university was. And had you gone back, if you went back in time and asked us at the time, you know, what do you think about diversity in the co-op? We would have said that we're open to everybody. We welcome everybody here, regardless of their, of their background. Now, the question of whether or not, you know, walking into that place, you would feel more comfortable if you were a white kid from rural Minnesota or whether you were, you know, from, from an urban environment. I mean, that's that's a question that would require some more thought, and it's a fair question. But I think we made a sincere effort to make a welcoming house. And um, 
you know, there, there was people of different backgrounds. There was people from different ethnic backgrounds, from different countries, certainly from different economic backgrounds. I remember there was a guy who was uh, in the co-op for a while. He was a former military guy and his sort of uh, attitudes, you know, contrasted with other people in the, in the co-op. It was very easy, easy to see. Um, but, you know, everybody got along. So, so I guess that's what I would say. I think, I think we did our best, you know, others might look at, at the, at the diversity and, and, and say that we could have or should have done things differently or that it wasn't a welcoming environment based upon, you know, subtle things that we, that we didn't control or you could say that, but, but I, I, there was, uh, there was a sincere effort on our part to create an an open community where everybody was welcome. If you don't mind a blunt yeah. question, um, how many how many people do you remember? Was it kind of like there was always one person of color or one Asian or like something like that? Did you see much, um, you know, non-white students coming and going? Yeah, yeah, there were there were non-white students. It wasn't just you know Midwestern you know white kids. There was diversity: people of Asian background, uh, people of Middle Eastern background. It wasn't just your your stereotype of a university of minnesota student and yeah and i would i would have to ask add also that particularly during the summer we we had this this organization that we were on the list of and the organization was i think called bunac and that was a acronym and we used to refer to these students as bunackers and they they were foreign students that would come over mostly from maybe the uk and they would work a job here in the twin cities uh, and then go back to their their home college maybe in the fall. So they were here mostly in the summer, and that added a very much of a an international cosmopolitan aspect to the co-op, particularly due to, during the summer. And so it was really fun to live there in the summer when the Bunackers were there. I remember I was roommates with a, a fellow from India. Uh, I forgot his name already, but uh, he was very forgiving. That was when I was up in room 18. He was my roommate. And I think he was a computer science major. And... Uh, my my friend Nick had some very good friends from graduate department that would come over and we would share meals and a, a really a person that I became very very close to who was an instructor of mine actually was from India and so he you know prepared Indian meals uh, in the kitchen a few times and he would always be watching television with us in the TV room and he was super duper smart it had a, a a very international feel to it a lot of times but especially in the summer and I, I would say that. It was usually pretty, the, the culture, even though it might have been diverse uh, culturally, it had a pretty academic feel to it, even though it was culturally diverse. Um, right, right, right. I can see that, yeah. You know, and the, the diversity, we didn't have to deal with the, often with the really difficult issues of, you know, economic diversity. Um, and right. I mean, there were, there were cases, there were a few cases here and there, but our rent was really low. So it kind of made it possible for people to be there and, um, and, and get a lot of out of the place. But we also really kind of tried to hold people to their responsibilities to the group, you know, as long as people were kind of pulling their end, I guess, uh, we didn't have to even worry too much about, you know, subsidizing the situation because the rents 
were already pretty low and there was a, a very generous meal plan people could get on. There right. were ample opportunities. I mean, there were always, there were always opportunities to get credit for doing jobs too. Like I remember sometimes people would say, I, you know, uh, if you do my, my dishes for the quarter, I'll, I'll gladly pay the fines and you can get the credits and you, you can get all these credits towards your rent. So it was, you could really live there very inexpensively. And that was one of the reasons I, I was able to, when I moved out of the co-op, I was, I was able to move into a, a, a property ownership situation. I, I don't think I'm sharing too much. Oh, because you were able to say, yeah, I was able to save exactly. I mean, I, and, and this is getting a little bit ahead of it, but I stopped taking classes and I continued living there and working a job, but contributing a lot to the house for a, a long time. But I was, my costs were very low. So I was able to save a lot of money. And then I was able to right. put a down payment on a condominium and then move right into a place that I owned, which was, I get great, it. You know, yes. for me. So, so yeah. So what uh, I'm hearing is the, while you're there, there's all these invisible things going on. Like a person with less opportunity who's living there might just be scraping by. And when they move out, they might yeah. not have that same privilege of like being a homeowner right out of the student's co-op. I know that I know that I couldn't. Like when I was there, it kind of like it was priced so low that I was kind of priced right out of the housing market by the time I left the students go up. And I'm I'm still stuck in that situation at the moment. But but yeah, no, that that's that's very interesting and very insightful. Thank you for sharing all that. And and also I wanted to get at the yeah, the feeling of international um exchange because I also know that it's not just about the diversity in America, but uh the university also like cross-pollinates with universities and colleges around the world. So it's really cool to hear about that BUNAC program. And I'll probably look into yeah. that. B-U-N-A-C, I want to say is probably the acronym. I haven't looked that up. Max, yeah. that was not happening when you were there. Is that correct? You didn't have international students coming in the summer? Right. We, we've, we've tried experimenting with things like um, couch surfing. Uh, and we did have a few couch surfing people. So that's a program where people can just come and stay for free. And they, we, we, we had them as boarders. So for example, we, we as roommates, Charlie and I were like, yeah, we will take the responsibility for including payments of whatever happens uh, for these bicyclists that are like traveling and they just want to stay in our room. They stayed on the floor. It was really cramped. There was like six of us in this, in room six. It was very fun. Um, but then what the only thing they paid for was the boarding, i.e. the food. So then that was just something that we did. But we didn't really have, you know, the international students were typically international students. I mean, they were just there uh, year round going to the university. We had Chinese nationals and um, someone from Somalia when I was there. And because I had not had that experience. I went to like a very um, privileged uh, art school MCAD and there was some diversity but not like I was seeing at the University of Minnesota so that was very exciting for me so that's really interesting to me that you you were a student at MCAD but you were living at the at the students co-op well I had graduated MCAD and they had just gotten rid of the rule that you had to be a student to live there so gotcha just to get back to this question of like credits and um, fines and things like that to me, it sounds like that whole system, which was more or less the same system that I moved into in 2011 and changed only slightly 
um, by the time I moved out in 2015, um, it seemed like it lasted kind of as an egalitarian culture for some time. Do you remember how much of that was changed or did you inherit it? Did you hear anything from the eighties about how much it had been different before you, you lived there? I, I could say a few things. Ian, do you want to, uh, do you want to say anything or should I just go ahead? Well, I guess, I guess the one thing that I would say is, is, is Max, you, you hinted at a critique of, of that, of that approach, which is, you know, to reduce your participation in the community to dollars and cents is an impersonal and, um, you know, fundamentally a capitalist uh, approach to what, to what, you know, we're supposed to, was supposed to be a, a intentional community where people, you know, succeed by, by contributing, you know, their, their, their time and their attention. And I, I understand the, the critique. Uh, however, I don't believe that there's a way out of it. I don't believe that there's a better way to run that type of community, because if you allow people to attempt to contribute uh, in other ways, you know, through through uh, a sort of unquantified, you know, cleaning or repairs or food preparation or things like this, you know, the 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 attempt to to value those activities in a way that you can ensure that everyone's getting a fair deal, it becomes so difficult that, that I, I believe it's unfortunate. And it's an it's a, it's a, it's a understandable critique, but I don't believe you can escape the, the, the monthly paying of rent, you know, the, the fines for people who don't do what they're supposed to do, the credits for people who, who suffer you know, because somebody else didn't do their task. I think it's necessary. I, I see your point. I mean, we're in the system where in order for the house to function, we have to pay taxes. So already we're plugged into this U.S. fiat debt currency that we're all exchanging just to just to pool it together to give it to the tax man. So where is that going to come from and how are you going to measure contributions to that? Um, I think that like some intentional communities, you know, outside of much more urban settings and much more strict uh, settings plugged into like city governments and stuff, you can probably get away with something like chores or like your own inner currency. And you could even probably experiment with that at the students co-op. But um, I'm hearing you say that basically it's like tried and tested at least through uh, two or three decades of the students co-op history, if not further. Back. Yeah. So you're, you're hinting, you're hinting at an alternative of an intentional community in a rural setting, and and this you might call this a commune, or there's other other terms for this, and and I would argue that that it's a poor model for the co-op because at the co-op you've got fundamentally people in an urban environment, whereas as we say, you know most people are working jobs where they're paid, the the house has to pay taxes, they have to interact with the city government in specific ways, and most of the people there are going to be students. This is a, a transitional part of their lives. They're getting through school. That's quite different from somebody who's made a deliberate decision to move to a, an agrarian co-op and commit themselves and really their, their whole lifestyle to that kind of cooperative environment. And, and there's some interesting things about those environments, but I would argue that that's not the situation the co-op is in. That makes sense. And Mark, I didn't mean to um, talk over you there too, if you wanted to no, no, I, it's fascinating. I was doing a lot of talking earlier, so I'm I'm really glad that um, 
the only reason I'm on this call really is to be honest is because uh, so Ian reached out to me a little bit. Um, and so I'm, I'm really thankful to Ian for, for doing that. Visiting with Mark and Ian continues next episode. We'll talk a bit about how the co-op fits into a larger community of co-ops and a bunch of other fun stuff. I hope you'll tune in. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast and you want to check out the show notes, you can do so at maxime.com forward slash co-op hyphen pod, C-O-O-P hyphen P-O-D.